Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalms 84, 1 through 7. If you are able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we hear his word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faint for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altar. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Salam. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highway to Zion. As they go through the valley of they make it a place of springs. Their earthly rain also covered it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of um, I'm sorry, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and mighty and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it says to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to hear what you have said. Help us by your spirit to take it deep into our hearts 
for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our series on discipleship, following Christ as a community. You know, and that is the way that people have looked at the church through the centuries. And in other, in other countries, they see that the, that the church is a community and they're following Christ. So they're not merely individuals seeking an individual benefit or an individual eternal reward, but as a community. However, for modern people, the only type I know, that has changed. Because even now, during, during COVID, church shopping is fashionable. As it appears, we have options. And like trying on a dress or a pair of pants, people check out churches to see if they fit. So today's Christian would say that they are a follower of Christ, but the underlying pretext is if I can find out how it benefits me. See, the first, the first thought isn't I'm going to, to place myself in a position of humility or, or bear with one another in, in love, but the underlying pretext is I will walk in a manner that, that's worthy of the calling if it benefits me, if it helps me to look respectable, if, if it, or, 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 or the preaching is, is what I like, or, or the music is what I like, and the list can go on and on. But how do you become, how do you become a Psalm 84 type of, of follower? And that Psalm, you hear what he said, how he said, he, he can't get enough of being in God's presence. I long for the courts of the Lord. He says, I will take, I will take the lowest position in the, as being a doorkeeper if I can be near God. I'm envious of the sparrows because they can build a nest right there in the wall of the temple. They're near God. I'm envious of them. He, wants, he longs to be. How do you get to be that type of follower? Where can, where can you get that, that type of desire if you're, as if you're waiting for conditions that, that suit you, yeah, I'm afraid you're not a disciple of Christ. And we've seen that what, what is essential to following Christ is, is stewarding the unity that we've been given by Christ. And that's what we've been talking about discipleship in these terms. Discipleship is practicing, is, is the practice of stewarding the unity that God has given us in Christ. Last week we heard that the reason a great many people were first called Christians in Antioch was because of their unity. Not because they told people their beliefs. Not because they followed the, the eight or, or nine accepted fundamentals. Not because they could attest that they were sure of their sins being forgiven. And those things are good, and those things are, are, are necessary, and, and, those, and they should be talked about. You know, but that's not, that's not why they were called Christians, but Jew and Gentile. Taking, taking in this grace of God and living together. They embodied these truths. They embodied those things. And living together, they were identified as being followers of Christ. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the command for the, is for the community of believers. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's that idea of being a steward of the unity that we've been given. But what is, but what is the steward, what, what, what is being a steward of unity going to accomplish? What, what is our discipleship accomplishing? That's what the sermon is about. Because if you read, if you've read verse 22 of Ephesians 2, you see the answer. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see it? Do you see what the community of disciples accomplishes? It accomplishes, it's making a home for God. And in making this dwelling of God by his spirit, if we want to be the Psalm 84 people of God, and there's five truths here in this text that that you have to keep in front of you, that we have to embrace. Christ comes down, outsiders are brought in, the two are made one, the building grows up, and God comes home. These five things. So Christ comes down. Look at verses 13 and 17. In Ephesians 2, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 17, he says, And he came. It's like we sang this morning. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. See, it's Christ's coming into the world that gets the church going. If Christ doesn't come, there is, there is no, no church. But so then why does he come? Why does he come down? Well, he comes down. Christ comes down because he was sent by the Father. Look at John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, the very purpose, the very purpose of Christ's coming is to bring us back to the Father. Isn't this what he says in, in the Gospel of John, verses one, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to become children of God. He brought us back to the Father. See, Christ comes down, the scripture tells us, that so that, he might, that we might have life. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, Christ's coming down is to fulfill the purposes of the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says this. Paul is writing, he's talking about God, and he says that that God, he's making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ comes down to accomplish the purposes of God in bringing about unity in all things in heaven and earth. Now, let me give you a warning. I'm a little juiced up this morning. 
And it's not because I had caffeine. Because I can't have caffeine. Okay, you probably didn't need to know that. But, 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 this, this, this just blows my mind what God is doing. Because too often we think too little of the church. Christians, believers, I'm not talking about people who don't know Christ. I'm talking about people who know Christ. Think too little of the church and its importance. What God is doing in the church. The calling that he's given to us. Christ comes down to accomplish the purposes of God in bringing about unity in all things in heaven and earth. So now in Christ, the outsiders are brought in. Look at verse 11 and 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So these Gentiles, Paul, Paul is saying to whom to these, he's writing them, they're now, he's reminding them of the distance spanned by Christ to bring them in. You see, they, they were outsiders. They, they, and the text tells us that they were less. They were Christ-less with no connection to the Messiah. They were stateless outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were friendless. They were strangers and, and aliens. They were hopeless. They didn't have Christ. They didn't have God. They had no promises. They had no prospect for the future. They were godless. Atheists. They were atheists. They, not that they didn't have gods, but that the God, they didn't have the one true living God. So they were without God. And they couldn't rely on the Jews to bring them to God because they hated each other. They hated each other. William Barclay, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, he says, that, he says that a common motto of the day was the best of the serpents, crush. The best of the Gentiles, kill. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth. For that would bring another heathen into the world. Can you imagine? That was that, that, that thought. You see, that's kind of shocking to us. You know, certainly no one would think that. Well, we can take a look at our own history. But you see, the pendulum, the pendulum of prejudice swings both ways. As the Gentiles hated the Jews and, and, the, and the Gentiles, you know, you know, so the Gentiles are everyone else in the world. So they hated, they hated one another. Livy, who was a Roman, he was a Roman uh, orator and historian, he had this to say about, about the Greeks. He said, the Greeks wage a truceless war against people of other races, against barbarians. Uh, and Rodney Stark, in, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he talks about how, how, how in Roman and Greco cities there were, there were these riots and, and ethnic conflicts would arise and Rome, Rome would be upset about these things. But still today, ethnic and, and tribal conflicts abound. Even in, even in our American melting pot, we still have ethnic strife. And the answer, the answer 
to their hostility and the hostility that exists today is still Christ. Only he can bring you near. And Paul says, remember how far outside you were. You really were. That you really, you really were outside. And now how near you have been brought by the blood of Christ. And these are emotionally laden words that Paul is, is using as, he, as he's talking to them. He wants them to feel the, the emotion behind these words. Feel the emotion of what was done for you. Christ brought them near, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. That's what Paul wants them to feel. That's what you and I are to feel when we, when we hear these words. Therefore, through Christ, the two are made one. Look at what it says in verse 14 through 17. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. You see, Jesus, he's not only a peacemaker, he himself is our peace. Hallelujah. See, you know, if you need to memorize any verse in the scripture or a phrase in the scripture, this, one, this is one you should memorize. Jesus, he himself is our peace. And to steward the unity that we've been given, this is something that, that you have to understand. Because what you see, what the text tells us, what Jesus did, that he abolished in order to create. Herod's temple had a court of the Gentiles. And in that court of the Gentiles, there is a wall that, that blocked and it prevented the Gentiles from, from going any further. And, and any Gentile trying, caught, trying to get past that wall was to be put to death. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he, he tells of, of some excavations that were, that were made in, of the Temple Mount in 1875 and, and 1934, and these, these two inscriptions were found, uh, they're, they're similar, but, they're, but the inscription read this way, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And by the way, you can, see, you can see these inscriptions if you ever take a trip to Istanbul or, or Jerusalem because they are on display in museums. You know, but, these, but these inscriptions, they're called Thanatos statements. They're Thanatos inscriptions. Now, Thanatos, does that sound familiar? You movie Marvel, you Marvel movie fans, you, you, yeah, you, you've seen that character. Thanos is coming. Yeah, death is coming. These, these, are, these are death statements. It is your fault. If you, if you cross that wall, it's your fault. You are doomed to die. And the scripture tells us Christ abolished these barriers. He, and he abolished these barriers so that he could create. The Greek word means Greek word for create, it means to make habitable. So, so he created out of the two separate people who couldn't live together, 
One new man. You see, the hostility that was removed was, he removed the hostility between us and God, but he removed the hostility that's between us, between Jew and Gentile. See, Jesus has removed those things that were used as as an obstacle to unity. The ceremonial laws and the commands, the hostility, see, the hostility that exists is the desire to be justified by our own efforts. You know, Cain, think of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. What happened? You know, so Cain is upset that, that he's not, you know, well, he didn't really care whether God accepted him or not. You know, God had been gracious. He was graciously had, had, had accepted. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't Cain's offering that was the problem. It, well, the problem was he, he, gave, he gave a cheap offering. Abel gave the choice. He gave the best. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, he offered a better sacrifice. He made, so he, and he was accepted the grace that God had given. See, what, what takes place is now that grace that God has given to you, you can't use it as a weapon to say you're better than someone else. Those commandments the Jews had, those covenants they had, that promise of the Messiah that they had that did not bring them any closer to God, having those things didn't, God's grace in Christ brought them close. So see, there's two ways that you can be far from God. Well, you, can, you can be far from God and be deeply religious, and you can be far from God because you aren't religious at all. And that's exactly what Jesus has removed. There's only one way to get close to God. You're far from God either way. There's only one way to get close to God, and that's through Christ. Christ has, he has removed those barriers. You can't say to anyone else. So if those things, if the commands and the ceremonial laws are now used, if, if your righteousness is now used as something to divide, you can't be a disciple of Jesus since he gave his body and blood to remove them. It's what's created. See, he abolished in order to create. What's created is a new humanity, a new race. Do you see? You see, there, there is no culture or ethnic group that can lay claim to Christianity. Christ has taken that away. No, no group, you know, the Jews couldn't say that, hey, listen, Christ is ours. No, they couldn't say that. In fact, they didn't say that. It can't, it can't be the black Hebrew Israelites who would say, oh, yeah, that's the only black people are saved. You know, you, if you're white, you know, you can't, you, if you're white, you're not right. Uh, <laughs> No, see, that can't, be, that can't be it either because Christ has taken that away from us. There's no culture or ethnic group that can lay claim on Christianity. See, Christianity is not just one culture's religion. See, and this was established early on in the church's history during the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So they're, they're the Jews, you know, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't asked to become Gentiles and Gentiles weren't asked to become Jews. Rodney Stark, he comments on this in his, in his book, the, uh, the Triumph of Christianity, how it became the world's largest religion. He says, the true importance of the Jerusalem Council's ruling was not its effect on Paul, but on rank and file Christians who now were able to reach out far more effectively to their Gentile friends, relatives, and neighbors. 
a process that eventually assembled the world's largest religion. And Richard Bauckham, he's an apologist and he, he's a prolific writer as well. In his book, The Bible and Mission, he says, whatever defines Christianity as a historical world phenomenon, cultural homogeneity is not likely to be such a feature. You know, no, that, no one culture can say Christianity belongs to us. But almost certainly, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Yeah, it does. Told you I was juiced up. <laughs> He's right. He's right. Why? Because Christ has made a new anthropos. He's made a new humanity that includes all nations. And it's this new humanity that the build, it's in this new humanity that the building grows up. Verses 19 and 21. Look at this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So now see, the, the Gentiles, they're no longer outsiders. They're, they're brought in. They're no longer friendless, but they are fellow citizens. They're no longer Christless since Christ is now the cornerstone. They're no longer godless since they are now the growing temple of the Lord. And Paul uses another metaphor because not only is the church a new humanity, but he says it's the household of God. It's a temple that's under construction and it's still going up. Hallelujah. Praise God. Do you see the importance? Hear this text. Do you see why being a community is important? Being a community of disciples? When the text says the whole structure being joined together. The whole structure being joined. The whole That's every one of us. Every one of us involved. Every one of us together. Every one of us stewarding this unity. Each of us are, that's been given to us. Every one of us growing up together. See, the church is still growing. Hallelujah. It's still growing as the temple of God. See, back in 2011, the Pew, Pew Research compiled some statistics on global Christianity. And the study took place in, in more than 200 countries and, and 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world. And listen to these. Here's what they came up with. Here, listen to these stats. 25.9% of the world's Christians live in Europe. 23.6% in Africa, 36.8% in North America and South America combined, and 13.1% and growing in Asia. Now, I know statistics can be, well, you know, you have statistics and they can be used for things, but, but you know, at least what, what are these statistics telling us? It's because it is saying a lot. But it's telling us that the church continues to grow. The church continues to grow and that it is wonderfully, beautifully, and intentionally diverse. And one writer points out how different this is from, from other religions. He says other religions are a part of their culture's beliefs. Hinduism, 90% of the world's Hindus live in India. With Buddhism, 80% of the world's Buddhists live in Asia. And with Islam, the majority of Muslims live in the Middle East, North Africa. But Professor 
Laman Sana, he's an African scholar. He, he taught at Harvard and Yale, and he's got a book, and it's a great title, and it's called Whose Religion is Christianity? He writes this, Christianity is the religion of over 2,000 different language groups in the world. More people pray and worship in more languages in Christianity than in any other religion in the world. <laughs> it's still growing. The building is still going up. Do you see why it can't be? Why it can't be that shopping for a church is part of the disciples' character? It can't be. Now, not if you're a follower of Christ, because if you understand that, 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 if you understand that being a disciple is stewarding the unity that you've been given, and you understand the cost of that unity, you can't, you can't ignore the beauty of what Christ has done. Because he has reached the deep, the deep desire of every human heart. Can't we all just get along? As Rodney King would say, in Christ, you can. And if you, if you see this, you, you will be in awe of his power to accomplish God's purposes. As the household and the temple continue to grow until God comes home. Good verse 22. In him you also are being built together in a, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in Christ we are being built into a, a habitation for God. God is coming home. Amen. <laughs> As the disciples of Christ, submitting to the work of Christ by the power of his spirit and, the steward, and, and, and as stewards of the unity that, that the spirit has given, God is coming home to his wonderfully beautiful, multi-ethnic bride, the church. You see, in the beginning, God made the man and the woman, he made them in his image, and he came down into the garden and he walked with them. Then they sinned and, and God drove them out of the garden and he hasn't been at home. He hasn't been home since then because they were made, because those who were made in his image needed to be made habitable. And did you notice here in the text that it's, it's the triune God at work? So it isn't, it isn't Jesus had to somehow make God happy. No, God desired this. So, so do you notice it's God the Father, it's God the Son, it's God the Holy Spirit, all working, making the people of God into a dwelling for God. The text said, in him, that is Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, Connie and I, we watch these HGTV shows that, that make restoring condemned buildings look easy. Yeah. She watches them more than I do. But, but, you know, yeah, and you watch those shows and, and, and it's like, it's like, you know, yeah, you feel like, well, I can do this myself. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a do it yourself thing. Yo, yo, well, you know, you don't see what's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> all the things that, all the things that were, were taken out. Yeah, yeah, you know, and there's, I mean, there's even one show that's called, you know, uh, Help, I Wrecked My Home. You know, I think there's something pastoral in there, but, but only God. See, but when it comes to, to rebuilding the condemned, God knows how to take condemned people and make them habitable. Hallelujah. He has done, you know, see, we don't make the home. We don't make the home. God provides himself a home. 
And our pilgrimage following Christ, it's leading us right into the center of this eternally loving, mutually glorifying, eternally unified community that is the Trinity. So you know what all of that says? It simply says, God wants to be near us. He wants us to be near him. That's why the writer of Psalm 84 longs to be near God since God comes to be near his people. And the communion shows us how we have been brought near, how the condemned people are made habitable, and why we can be assured that the building will last because the body and the blood of Christ are the very cause of this unity. And what Paul stated states explicitly here in the text, the Eucharist shows us dramatically. His blood brings us near and his body is the means of reconciliation between us and between us and God. So come to the table of, of our Lord, brothers and sisters, for he has made us one. been made one, we who were far off, we who were foreigners, we are no longer strangers or aliens because of God and his grace through Jesus Christ to us. And so we come to the table of the Lord.